10 minutes into the World Cup qualifier between Nigeria and Ghana, Ghanaian midfielder Thomas Partey scored the goal that put the Ghanaians in the lead. Nigeria would go on to score equaliser in the 22nd minute, but it wouldn't matter. By beating Nigeria, Ghana moved on to one of the five slots reserved for African countries at the 2022 World Cup, officially winning this chapter of the long-standing feud between Nigeria and Ghana. The two countries have a rivalry that spans musical genres, rice recipes, and football stadiums. But unlike most country rivals, we don't even share a border. There are two whole countries between us, Benin Republic and Togo. But we get our connection from our shared colonizer, the British. Before we were Ghana and Nigeria, we were different West African empires connected by trade and travel. We used to be united by love for gold, salt, and cola nuts. But today, there's a rivalry between both countries that makes everything and everyone a casualty. Just ask Cardi B. They love each other, but you know they fake be beefing with each other. I did not know that. Whether we're fighting about who makes the best jollof rice or who plays better football, the goal is less about winning and more about rubbing those victories in each other's faces. The beef between Ghana and Nigeria has spanned decades and it doesn't seem to be ending anytime soon. And even though most times it's a light-hearted play fight, sometimes our beef has come at a huge cost for those caught in between the rift. When Ghana passed the 1969 Aliens Compliance Order that expelled over 2.5 million African migrants, Nigeria would retaliate 14 years later. Ghanaian nationals forced to leave Nigeria quickly packed their belongings in the signature red, blue, and white striped bags, which we would all eventually come to know as Ghana must go. Today, tensions between both countries have simmered down to a tame sibling rivalry, but the story of Nigeria and Ghana's love-hate relationship is a story of one of history's most persistent rivalries. It's a cautionary tale of how economic struggles can turn friends to foes. But it's also a story of chance encounters throughout history that could mean our love was always meant to be. You're listening to Uncultured, a podcast where we give you short answers to culture's biggest questions so you don't have to worry about looking uncultured. I'm your host, Maya Waidou, and this is When Ghana Met Nigeria. The soundtrack to Nigeria and Ghana's anti-love story is High Life. High Life is a musical genre that took off in West Africa in the early 20th century, and it reached its commercial peak between the 50s and 70s. And High Life, actually, is indigenous among the Ghanaians. So I found that it would be necessary to build up this music and introduce it to the dancing fans. Ghanaian musician Emmanuel Tete Mensa, aka E.T. Mensa, was the king of high life. He and his band, The Temples, were the most prominent high life band from Ghana. E.T. Mensa and The Temples would go on to tour across Nigeria in the early 50s, and their songs quickly became the sounds loved and played all over the country. The band continued to play shows across West Africa, making stops in Sierra Leone, Ivory Coast, Guinea, and Liberia and Mensah's success would eventually earn him the title, King of High Life. And in 1967, the Art Council of Ghana really awarded me the title, King of High Life. 
So as it is, I am the king of high life in Ghana. But this was West Africa in the 50s and 60s, and well, West Africans loved coups, so Iti Mensa wouldn't stay king for long. As Mensa's high life maintained its hold on Nigerian airwaves, local musicians like Bobby Benson, Victor Waifu, and Victor Laia would start playing their versions of High Life across Nigeria too. The local bands did well, but it was still Mensa's sounds that the people wanted to hear. And the Nigerian musicians were not happy about this, particularly Victor Olaya. He had a band called the Cool Cats, who were later renamed the All-Stars. They played High Life shows in Nigeria in the 50s, and Olaya eventually became Nigeria's very own king of High Life. Even though Olaya was influenced a lot by E.T. Mensah's sound and even played Ghanaian-style high life at many of his shows, he and other Nigerian high life musicians got fed up with Mensah taking up the spotlight not just in Ghana, but also in Nigeria. In October of 1981, E.T. Mensah would take a trip to New York to visit some old friends. And while in the States, he would make a stop at Voice of America Studios, a radio network in Washington, D.C., during the interview, he recalled how Nigerian musicians were so bothered by his success that they formed a musician's union just to stop him from performing in the country. During those visits to Nigeria, I can remember you had some rivalry with some of the musicians in Nigeria. They felt that uh, you dominated um, the field. During those days, when you are a foreigner and you enter Nigeria, you are even selling you are not very well patronized. But it happened that when I visited Nigeria, my music was so much patronized that it set other musicians out of job. So all of them gathered together and because of me, they formed the U- uh, Musicians Union in Nigeria just to stop me from coming to Nigeria to take their bread. In 2006, Olaya himself would reminisce of frustrating Mensah's musical efforts in an interview with Adeola Balogu. Speaking of Mensa, Olaya said, We did everything to reduce his frequent incursions into Nigeria. Because at that time, Mensa had swept all the money away into Ghana. Mensa got the message and stopped making regular trips into Nigeria from the 60s, preferring to tour other African countries instead. This rivalry between Olaya and Mensa was happening at a time when Ghana and Nigeria were both British colonies agitating for independence. And at that time, Ghana was still called the Gold Coast. When Ghana celebrated its independence from the British on March 6, 1957, the song played at the Independence Ball was E.T. Mensah's song, Ghana Freedom, a record he had written and recorded to commemorate the day. Ghana, we now have freedom. And when Nigeria celebrated its own independence three years later, on the 1st of October 1960, Victor Olaya and his band were invited to perform at the Independence Ball. The beef between the two eventually fizzled out, and they even went on to create a joint album in 1984, which at the time was basically the West African version of Watch the Throne. It was released under Polydor Records and was diplomatically called High Life Giants of Africa. As both Ghana and Nigeria became independent nations, the national beef that started cooking during the colonial era would eventually become a full-on feud. It would result in the mass expulsion of Nigerians from Ghana in 1969 
and an expulsion of Ghanaians from Nigeria 14 years later in 1983. But our relationship wasn't always so toxic. Before we became independent nations, we were regions united by trade that connected merchants from Kano, Nigeria to markets in Salaga, Ghana. We're talking more about how we used to get along when we come back after the break. In the 1800s, Kano was a thriving commercial hub in what would eventually become Nigeria. It was a city in the Sokoto Caliphate, an Islamic state in the north of Nigeria that was formed by Usman Danfodia. Merchants from Kano would export goods like dyed cloth and leather using camel caravans, and they would also import goods like kola nuts. Most of the kola nuts imported into Kano came from the Ashanti Kingdom, an empire in what would become Ghana. Kola nuts contain caffeine, and they are mildly addictive. Merchants from Kano would purchase them at the Salaga markets in Ghana in exchange for salt and cloth. This trade between Kano and the Ashanti Kingdom was so lucrative that the Kolanot trade even became a major source of wealth for one of the richest men in 19th century West Africa, Al-Hassan Dantata, the great-grandfather of Aliko Dangote. When the Europeans established colonies in West Africa, they created country borders that segregated the region based on their own political and economic interests. Britain occupied Ghana and Nigeria, while the French occupied the two regions between them, Togo and Bene. Migration and travel continued in this colonial era, but it was mostly promoted by colonialists who wanted to benefit from cheaper labor that came in the form of migrants from neighboring countries. Back in the 60s, countries like Ghana, Ivory Coast, and Gambia were the hotspots for West African migrants looking for work. And it was during the early 60s that many Nigerians would migrate to Ghana in search of opportunities. At what age did you move to Ghana and why? Uh, I was born there. But I know that at least I was above 18 before we left there. Damilala Oyeleke, a writer here, a cultural custodian, caught up with her uncle who grew up in Ghana in the late 50s. My names are Justus Adetunji. I celebrated my 78th year. It's supposed to be 25th of February. You can see there is a mark on my cheek to tell you that I was born over there. And they named me in Ghana, not in Nigeria. He had to leave Ghana when the 1969 Aliens Compliance Order was passed. So my parents really resided in Dansami. We call it Dansami. And under Asin Fosu, local government. So that's uh, under the uh, central region of Ghana. So, and that place, in fact, the town itself was diamond rich. So some people were even <laughs> uprooting their houses and digging to, you know, to get to search for diamond. But over there, we re- in fact, we really love that place. Nigerian migration into Ghana was already pretty common by the 1930s and there were about 57,000 Nigerian migrants by 1931. Many of these early West African migrants worked on cocoa farms, in factories, or in mines where they would dig for diamonds. By 1963, the number of Nigerian migrants had risen to over 190,000, and they made up the majority of the foreign West African population in Ghana. 
Of the over 190,000 Nigerian immigrants at the time, about 140,000 of them were Yoruba. Do you remember experiencing any discrimination for being Nigerian? Hmm. Over there or Over here? There. Yes. I remember very well. Sometimes, even in school, they would tell you that, ah, Alaten, as a Nigerian, we call these Alata people Yoruba in Ghana. Ghana language is Alata. As the migrant population continued to grow, Ghanaians were pressuring their government to ensure that the economy and jobs still favor the locals. In the late 60s, Ghana's economy started to decline, and the pressure on the government to address employment concerns got worse. Ghanaian government, they felt that their economy wasn't going on well, and they believed that it was the foreigners or the aliens or whatever you call them were the architect of their economic downturn. But because as at that time, if you go to their big uh, markets, you find Nigerians, especially Alata, Alata for that is Yorubas, that are selling all sorts of goods over there. So they now felt that maybe that is what is causing their own problems. In July of 1969, an order was given to all foreign embassies to register their citizens and facilitate their work and residence permits. By November 18th of the same year, Kofi Busia, Ghana's Prime Minister, passed the Indian's compliance order that required all migrants without those permits to get them within two weeks of face deportation. I was there when this uh, decree came in that uh, aliens must go. Aliens must go. So I felt it didn't, it's not my business. <laughs> Because my parents have been there for long. We've known the everything. In fact, daddy was a real merchant. And there was no problem. So we felt that this kind of uh, alliance must go. It's not, it's not a problem. Most also couldn't get their papers on such short notice and were forced to quickly sell their properties and leave Ghana. What was like? Oh, it was horrible. We were packaged like, uh, you know, packing all sort of uh, bags of uh, beans, bags of uh, corn or maize. We are really, you know, we had to pack, package all our goods, just belongings that, okay, when I get there, I must not cut cold and things like that kind of address. And it was a very horrible uh, experience. In fact, I don't... I don't wish anybody to pass through that experience again. And then when we got to Aflau Junction, that was where I almost lost my, my soul. I almost died. <laughs> because the, 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 the climate, the, the weather was not, favor, not favorable, especially to me. So when I caught that kind of fever, cold, it was all this... Uh, people, medical team, sort of, that, you know, came to my rescue. When we met, it was by God that I'm still alive. So that's why we were here today. And we are now Nigerians. And uh, all our children are Nigerians. <laughs> so that is it. 
The compliance order was an easy way for the government to scapegoat foreigners as the reason for Ghana's economic troubles. And calling migrant workers aliens really reinforced the nationalist sentiments of newly independent West African nations. Ghana, like many other West African countries, had already started expelling African foreigners towards the end of the colonial era. Ivory Coast repatriated many Togolese, Nigerians, and Beninois in 1958. And in 1964, Niger had expelled all Beninois people from the country. So Ghana wasn't doing anything too strange at the time. But this was the first time that a West African nation had ordered the mass expulsion of immigrants at this scale, and it wouldn't go unforgotten. After the break, we're talking about how Nigeria responded 14 years later with a policy that would create the phrase, Ghana must go. In 1983, Nigerians were getting ready to elect their next president. Shehu Shagari, who was president at the time, started the year by ordering all undocumented immigrants to leave Nigeria. The undocumented aliens order was passed on January 17, 1983, and it required all immigrants without formal documentation to leave the country or face imprisonment. The oil boom of the 70s meant that many Africans started migrating into Nigeria to look for work, and most of those migrants happened to be Ghanaian. Do you remember when Ghanaians started moving to Nigeria? Those that I noticed were those that were working with us. Now, now IBM was international. So these guys, when things were tough over there, they now left Ghana and then began to come to Nigeria. And it was one person that came first, and that was the most senior engineer over there. And he said he had many others that are over there that things were not even going on well with the company over there. Before you knew what was happening, we had more than seven of them. By the 80s, Nigeria's decade of oil started to dry up thanks to the crash in the oil market that started in 1982. And the country was going to face economic decline and a standard of living that was progressively getting worse. Shagari had just completed his first term as president and was seeking a second term. He had lost the faith of the Nigerian people who were now facing the consequences of the oil crash and government corruption. By 1981, the Nigerian Labour Congress had organized a general strike calling for a national minimum wage. And Shagari considered giving Nigeria its first national minimum wage of 125 naira a month. However, his efforts to console the Nigerian public were not enough. And as election season got closer, it was getting clearer that his legitimacy was in question. It didn't take long for the government to distract Nigerians with a common enemy that they could blame for the country's economic decline. That enemy was, of course, immigrants. Many of the West Africans that had moved to Nigeria in the 70s were working menial jobs in the secondary sectors. And to deflect attention from the corruption that had actually caused Nigeria's problems, the government started spreading propaganda about the foreign population. The Minister for Internal Affairs at the time, Alhaji Ali Baba, even said, Ghanaians, Togolese, and Nigerians had been the aliens most involved in criminal and malicious acts in Lagos for over three years. With Nigerians convinced that Ghanaian migrants in particular were the source of their economic hardship, 
the undocumented alien's order was quickly enforced. Many immigrants were forced to leave with a few of their belongings stuffed in red, blue, and white checked bags. By the 15th of February, around one and a half million foreigners had officially left Nigeria. About 120,000 of them were Cameroonian. 150,000 were from Chad. But over 700,000 of them were Ghanaians. Some were sent home through airlines like Ghana Airways, KLM, and Swissair. But many were stranded at transit camps with no way to get home. And the mass expulsion led Nigerians to rename the red, blue, and white bags used by departing Ghanaians, Ghana must go. It's been 40 years since Ghana was forced to leave Nigeria. And there have been no more mass expulsions between the two countries. Also, despite his efforts, Shagari would never go on to serve a second term. In December of 1983, Muhammadu Buhari would oust Shagari in a military coup, making him Nigeria's head of state. The nation's economic situation would take a turn for the worse, and its problems would linger well after all the immigrants were gone. Even though Nigerians still call the checked bags and all the other variations of it, Ghana must go. The beef with Ghana is less serious these days. It gets the most competitive on football fields where the Nigerian Super Eagles and the Ghanaian Black Stars go head-to-head -head in tournaments. Ghana has won 25 games against Nigeria, while Nigeria has only won 12. But Nigeria has done better than Ghana at the World Cups. The Super Eagles have been playing at the World Cup since 1994, but the Black Stars qualified for the first time in 2006. However, Ghana has managed to reach the World Cup quarterfinals, while Nigeria has never made it past the second round, so Ghana is still technically in the lead. Sports commentators have called our athletic rivalry the Jalof Derby because it's a spin-off of the Jalof Wars. Every now and then, Nigerians and Ghanaians go to social media to trash-talk each other's Jalof rice, and it's a roasting session that has gone international many times. However, in October of 2014, Nigerians and Ghanaians would temporarily pause our feud to face West Africa's common enemy, Jamie Oliver. The British celebrity chef published a recipe for jollof rice on his website that included ingredients like coriander, parsley, lemon, and tomatoes on the vine. As West African Twitter tore the recipe apart, Nigeria and Ghana joined forces in what would be called Jamie Oliver's jollof gate. Jollof rice is a savory dish made by simmering rice in an aromatically spiced tomato sauce. It has ingredients like onions, scotch bonnet, ginger, garlic and bouillon cubes. It doesn't have any coriander, parsley or lemon. West Africans respect this rice the same way we respect high life, but we all make it a little differently. In Nigeria, jollof is made with long grain rice that absorbs the flavors of the tomato sauce, while also managing to keep the grains firm and individual instead of being sticky and clumped together. Ghanaian jollof is mostly made with basmati rice or jasmine rice. Basmati and jasmine rice give Ghanaian jollof its own distinct flavor. When Oliver published his recipe, it was part of a series called Jamie's Top 10 Rice Dishes and it featured rice recipes from around the world. He claimed that his jollof recipe, with a twist, was inspired by Ghanaian jollof. But that didn't stop Nigeria from showing up to the fight. We've had a very rocky love story. 
Our fiery passion has birthed iconic musical collaborations that have changed music as we know it. But it has also displaced millions of people in expulsion orders. Sometimes our friendly football rivalries become violent stadium clashes. And the back and forth between Afrobeat stars can turn ugly and disturbing. But when we came together to face Jimmy Oliver in the great Jollof Gate of 2014, we reminded each other that just like real siblings, we'll always fight and we'll always have to share stuff. But in the end, we're still the only ones allowed to make fun of each other because underneath the beef, it's all love. Also, if anyone is going to show how bad Ghanaian Jollof can be, it should be Nigeria and Nigeria alone. Thank you, Chale, for making sure we never forget that. Uh. I've been your host, Maya Waidogo. And if you like the show, please make sure to check out the next episode. Our producers for this episode have been myself and Adora Udwa. Original script was written by Adora Udwa and Uncultured is produced by Culture Custodian. A very special thank you to Damilola Oyeleke and her uncle Justice Adetunji Oyeleke, who you heard on this episode. Make sure to listen to our other episodes. Leave us a comment and subscribe to never miss an episode. Follow us on social media at Culture Custodian everywhere. Bye.